Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 4 this morning. We continue with our ongoing Sunday morning series entitled Spreading the Kingdom Message. This is message number 8 in our series. Our text will be all of chapter 4, but we're only going to read right now the first six verses and then also verses 18 through 21. Verse 1, now as they spoke to the people, the priests... The captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Verse 5, it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Now skip down to verse 18. So they commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. John Wesley was riding along a road one day on his horse when it dawned on him that three whole days had passed in which he had suffered no persecution. Not a rock or an egg had been thrown at him for three days. Alarmed, he stopped his horse and he exclaimed, Can it be that I have sinned, that I have backslidden? Slipping off the horse, Wesley went down on his knees and began pleading with God to show him where, if any, there had been a fault. A rough fellow on the other side of the hedge, hearing the prayer, looked across and recognized Wesley I'll fix that preacher, he said, picking up a rock and throwing it at Wesley. It missed its mark and fell harmlessly beside the preacher, whereupon Wesley leaped to his feet, joyfully exclaiming, Thank God it's all right. I still have his presence. (laughs) The Apostle Paul said something that rattles my cage from time to time when I think about it. In 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's awful hard to get around that verse. Have you suffered persecution? If not, maybe you should ask yourself, Are you living godly in Christ Jesus? Persecution comes in many forms, not merely physical. You may never have anyone throw rocks at you. But perhaps you have had words thrown at you, like rocks, that intend to hurt you and destroy you. You remember what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice! And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
So we can see, even from the words of Jesus, there are other types of persecution besides the inflicting of bodily pain upon someone. There's also reviling and saying all kinds of evil against someone for Christ's sake. That's also persecution. I've titled the message this morning, Boldness Amidst Persecution. There's plenty of persecution in this world, even in our own land, sometimes physical or mental, most often verbal, but it can be the other forms. And certainly if you're familiar with what's happening in the church of Jesus Christ around the world, people are persecuted very intensely, bodily. Places like China, certainly in the Middle East, many countries, many places, it's awful. And we're told in the scriptures to pray for those who are in prison, who are suffering for Christ's sake. We find here in this chapter the first persecution on record in the early church. And there's nothing surprising about that. But what I'd like to emphasize this morning in the message is their right response to the persecution. You know, sometimes people are persecuted and they buckle under the pressure. They deny Christ. They give in. They just want to die, whatever the case might be, and how severe the persecution is. They fold, if you will, under pressure. Or they complain about it. Maybe you've been persecuted verbally and you just complain about it. Well, Jesus said, you remember the verses we read a moment ago, he says, rejoice, be exceedingly glad because you have a reward waiting for you one day. Go back with me to verse 1 in Acts chapter 4. It says, as they spoke to the people. That's Peter and John. You know, that's usually how persecution begins. We speak out for Christ. Others don't like it. The rocks start flying, whether physical or verbal. Keep in mind the background. In chapter 3, Peter heals the lame man. We're told in today's text that this lame man was 40 years old. And he had been put by the gate of the temple every day so that he could beg for gifts so that he could survive. I'm sure it was difficult for him. And Peter, we saw this in the last message, lifts him up by hand, and says, in the name of Jesus, I pronounce you healed. That's glorious. Verse 8 of Acts 3 says, So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. I think I would be leaping and praising God, too, if that happened to me after 40 years of not being able to walk from birth. What a miraculous healing, a marvelous healing. Peter then preaches a powerful message to the crowds who have gathered, and that provokes a response from the religious leadership. Now, you remember the Jewish leadership, they did not like this sort of thing. According to verse 1, the religious leaders converge on Peter and John, not police, not Roman guards, but religious leaders, priests, those Levites who offer sacrifices, and the captain of the temple, we're told, he's the second in charge to the high priest. His duty is to keep order in the temple. He was kind of like chief of security. And they're all Sadducees, not Pharisees. That's the other sect. They're all Sadducees who do not believe in the supernatural. Like the liberal Protestants of today. There are plenty who don't believe in supernatural things. And yet, I wonder how they can call themselves Christian. How they can have a church. That's not the essence of Christianity. In verse 6, we learn that Annas is involved. Now, you remember him from the crucifixion account in the Gospels? He's the former high priest. 
And he's father-in-law of Caiaphas, who's the current high priest. I smell a rat even in that. But he's corrupt. He's hypocritical. He is the ringleader who had urged the nation to crucify Christ. And of course he was crucified. Well, this council gathers to discuss the fate of Peter and John. What are we going to do to these guys? They're stirring up a lot of trouble in the temple. We can't have this. These followers of Jesus. Can't you just hear them talking? They hate Jesus. They've crucified him. And so we're told in verse 2 that they're greatly disturbed. That Peter has preached about the resurrection of Jesus. Thus we find the first persecution. Now how do the authorities handle the situation? We're told in verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So essentially, they put Peter and John in some sort of makeshift prison overnight. Now perhaps they sleep peacefully? We don't know. Perhaps they sing praises to the Lord like Paul and Silas did in Acts chapter 16. We'll get to that in a future message. Perhaps they used the time to meditate on some things that Jesus had said about persecution. You know, he did say in 1520 of John, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Uh Uh-oh. These disciples of Jesus are in it for the long haul, and they know that means persecution. Their minds undoubtedly race to the cross. And then they consider their own fate. If we keep this up, we're going to be persecuted. Peter remembers, I'm sure, the conversation he had with Jesus in John 21. You don't need to turn, but remember that conversation at the Sea of Galilee where Jesus predicted that Peter would die as a martyr? Peter must be wondering, is this it? Are the religious leaders going to put me to death? They know persecution had been prophesied by Jesus, Why do those who despise truth resort to persecution? You ever wonder about that? Jesus told us in John 15, 21 and 22. Jesus said, all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Think about it. When Jesus exposes sinfulness... Those who are guilty become uncomfortable. They run and hide when the light shines upon their very dark hearts. I'm amazed that when I open my shed doors and the light floods in to that dark place, the critters in there go running for their lives. (laughs) Probably mice. I'm sure roaches out in the shed, you know, all kinds of critters out there. Who knows? Snakes. I've found snake skins out there, so they live out there too. And when you open the doors and the light floods in, ah, they scurry to get away. And that's what people do in a spiritual sense when the light of Christ shines on their very dark hearts and exposes their sinfulness. Think about it. Mark it down. When you expose man's sin through just giving them the truth of the scriptures, there will be one of two responses. Either getting right with God or persecution. Now look back at verse 4 in our text and we're going to see the positive response. Many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. 
Now this is in addition to the 3,000 Jews who believed Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, and they repented, they returned to fellowship with God, and on this day, another 5,000 get right with Jehovah. I mean, that's 8,000 people getting right with God. It's just wonderful to see what God is doing. Well, that gets the attention of the authorities. No wonder they're concerned. And now we see their negative response in verses 16 and 17 of our text. What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. These religious leaders are greatly agitated and upset that Peter and John have preached the doctrine of the resurrection, which they don't even believe in. But think about it. If Christ is really alive, then indeed he is the Messiah, and these men are culpable, they're responsible for killing him. They will have to give an account as to why they rejected him and put him to death. The resurrection has powerful ramifications. When we preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we show people that they are sinners, enemies of God. That's why he died, to pay the price for their sins. And that they're going to be judged. And the Holy Spirit often uses that message to bring conviction to people who need to be saved, regenerated. Well, all of this conviction disturbs these religious leaders, and so they throw these two apostles in prison or jail. The next morning, the leaders ask, verse 7, By what power or by what name have you done this? Well, one thing has brought them together. The healing of the lame man and the subsequent spirit-filled preaching of Peter, which has resulted in 5,000 Jews restored to fellowship with Jehovah. This is no small stir. The leaders want to know by what power or what name Peter's done this miracle. What does he tell them? Acts 4 verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Then verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now notice that the passage tells us in verse 8, Peter is filled with the Spirit as he answers. This isn't some fleshly response. You know how sometimes when you're persecuted, you might jab back or attack back with your words to the person, but it's just a fleshly response. It's just of you. It's not of God. We need to beware of that. We need to say, Lord, give me the right words to say that you're glorified and I'm just a humble servant. Well, Peter's filled with the Spirit as he answered. He's endued with power, the same power that's available to you and me. When we ask God for bread to give to the hungry, and that comes right out of Luke chapter 11, you can read that later. Peter attributes the miracle not to his own might or his own power or authority, but to Jesus. And then he proceeds to charge them with crucifying, killing the Messiah. Now that's true, but you think that was a politically correct message? (laughs) 
No, they didn't want to hear that. This is the third time that he charges his audience with this. He had done it on Pentecost. He had done it in chapter 3 and now in chapter 4. And he also preaches the resurrection for the third time, which is a critical doctrine, and it indicts these leaders all the more. And then Peter makes it clear that the healing has been done by this same Jesus. Peter's saying, look, I don't have the power to heal this man. I'm just a man myself. Jesus does. And he gave me the power to heal this man in his name. That's what he's telling these leaders, which they don't like to hear because they've put this man to death. Jesus. And he's been resurrected. Ooh, now they're going to have to give an account. In verse 11, Peter quotes the Old Testament. Did you catch it? Psalm 118, verse 22, he quotes, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. But he personalizes it to these religious leaders. When he quotes it in Acts 4.11, he says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders. Ouch. It's personal now. It's not just a quote from the Old Testament. You did this. What does he mean by this? And by the way, I should throw this in. Jesus quoted that same verse in Matthew 21, 42. But what does this mean? Well, an old tradition claimed that in the building of Solomon's temple, the stones were cut to fit out in the field. And then they were brought into the city and put in place. And they did all this to keep the noise down in the city of Jerusalem. You know, the cutting of stones would have been awful loud if they had done it in the city. One day a stone was brought which fit nowhere, which was seemingly a mistake. And so the builders rejected it and they just laid it aside. But when they were completing the walls, they found that the headstone of the corner was missing. It was this same despised and rejected stone. Both Peter and Jesus applied this very scripture And perhaps the tradition surrounding it, because all the Jews would have known this, to these Jewish leaders who have rejected Christ, the capstone of all religious truth. Wow. And again, I say, ouch. This is very personal to these leaders. And Peter is applying these verses to them, and I'm sure they're squirming. They don't feel very comfortable. And then Peter says, nor is there salvation in any other For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Today, most Christians assume this is referring to initial salvation or regeneration, but that's not the context. And I do want to say, granted, Jesus is the only way to be saved in the first place as well, or regenerated. But that's not what this verse is saying. We have to keep it in its context. Peter is speaking to Jews who are already believers in an Old Testament sense and therefore regenerate. We've talked about this all throughout this series, their need is to get right with God in the spirit of Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, God says, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's what needs to happen here to these Jews. And that's what Peter is preaching about. Well, Peter makes clear in Acts 2, verse 40, that's his Pentecost message, that the need for these people, his Jewish countrymen, is to be saved from their perverse generation and the forthcoming judgment, which we know actually came upon Israel in AD 70 when the Romans invaded and destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and so on. So this kind of salvation is not initial 
regeneration like we would think the day we got saved. This is messianic salvation. Peter also teaches in Acts 3, 19-21 that if the nation will repent of their sins and return to fellowship with Jehovah, then Jesus will come to launch his messianic kingdom. And in the minds of the Jews, they know that includes deliverance from their enemies. And who were their enemies? The Romans, who were ruling over them at this very time. Thus, this salvation is deliverance from judgment and from Gentile enemies, with Messiah himself as their national leader, leading them forward. Peter's point is that Jesus is the only one to offer this messianic salvation. There's no salvation in anyone else. So Israel must repent of her awful sin of crucifying Jesus and embrace him as their Messiah. Even you religious leaders, because that's who he's preaching to. Now, what effect does this message have in these religious leaders? Verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. They marvel at Peter and John, but why? John Phillips, the commentator, said everything in their surroundings should have overawed these two peasants, Peter and John. They were standing in the impressive surroundings of the nation's supreme court facing the nation's richest, ablest, most aristocratic, educated, powerful men. They were a couple of country bumpkins who should have stood there mumbling apologetically with shuffling feet and downcast eyes. Instead, they looked more like what they really were, ambassadors from the courts of heaven. They stood as those who had an ultimatum to present surrender or war. End quote. I like how Phillips puts that. These religious leaders know that Peter and John are uneducated fishermen. And by this statement, the leaders are not bad-mouthing their occupation. They're simply saying that Peter and John are not trained priests. They're not scholars. Yet they speak with such conviction and power and boldness. The leaders recognize the fact that Peter and John have been with Jesus. In other words, they're just like him. His life is being lived through them. That, my friend, is the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's the best testimony that anyone could give about your life. Can you imagine someone saying about you, so-and-so, oh, they act just like Jesus. What a commendation. What an honor to have that said about you. They're just like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus, don't you? Sure, that's our goal. It's our ambition in life to be like Jesus. And I'm thankful that these apostles are known for that. The religious leaders look at Peter and John and the lame man and they conclude as the text records in verse 14, seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. How can you argue with that? A man lame from birth, 40 years old, is healed. The religious leaders, they cannot dispute this profound miracle. And the lame man is standing there with Peter and John. He's ready to give testimony. (laughs) Thus God uses the weak things to confound the mighty, we're told in Scripture. But notice what they ask themselves in verses 16 and 17. This is the leadership. What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. You know, that's interesting. Because the Sadducees denied the supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles. 
But they can't deny this. It's pretty obvious the man's been healed. So it goes against the grain of their theology, we might say. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Can you figure the logic of this for me? I mean, if I saw a man healed, I'd have to rethink my theology. Oh, wait a minute. I've got to think about this. I don't believe in miracles or the supernatural, but I've just seen a man healed miraculously. And these guys are saying it's because of Jesus. I've got to rethink this Jesus guy. <laughs> that would be my response, but not these guys. They're so bitter and angry and they hate Jesus so much that they're going to persecute his own followers. So despite the great miracle, which they cannot deny, they deliberately choose to harden their hearts. They refuse to believe Jesus is the Messiah and consequently they refuse to repent. They lead Israel in her second national rejection of Christ's kingdom offer despite Peter's re-offer of that. Christ had offered them the kingdom. They denied him. They denied his offer and they put him to death. Now Peter's offering it again. They deny that too. They want these apostles of Jesus to stop preaching. And they want to quash the growth of this new movement. It's later going to be called Christianity, we're told in the book of Acts. But it's not yet known as that. So what did they decide to do? Verse 18. They called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. And can't you see some high and lofty judge, maybe even our own Supreme Court? You Christians, you can't do that. Someday they're going to do that, and they have, some judges have, made foolish decisions and determinations, trampled all over the religious freedom of people. But that's nothing new. <laughs> it goes back to New Testament times, and for that matter, it goes back to the very beginning. Cain killed Abel, persecuted his own brother unto death, because his brother was righteous and he was not. So, I mean, this has been around since the creation of the world. They command Peter and John not to preach in the name of Jesus. And I got to tell you, that's persecution. Whenever someone tries to constrain you from proclaiming Bible truth, you are being persecuted. Maybe you're forbidden to witness at work, even if it's on your break time. You're run out of a church because of what you believe. Or you're kicked out of a Christian organization for teaching about the kingdom. Maybe you're blasted on the internet for what you have preached, pastor, or what you have written, could be anybody, or your Facebook post, something you said about Christ or Christianity. Whatever pressure is put on you to shut up, that's persecution. And I remind you that Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, an important question how should we respond when persecuted? Notice how Peter and John responded, verses 19 and 20. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard, as if to say, you make your own decisions before God, but we know that God wants us to speak out the words of truth we must tell what we know is right. Well, the religious leaders refrain from any further persecution because we're told that they fear the response of the people. We see that in verse 21. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people. 
since they all glorified God for what had been done. The only crime, and I put that word in quotation marks, the only crime of these apostles is leading 5,000 men to repent and return to fellowship with God who are now glorifying God. What's wrong with that? Wouldn't that make for a better culture? (laughs) By the way, when people get saved and their lives transformed and they start living for God, that contributes to a much better culture than the alternative. Yet wicked man can't see that. They'd rather live in their sinfulness. They're like the critters in my shed who when the light is shined on them, they head for the tall grass. You know, they're going to get out as soon as they can. Now I need to put in a little parenthesis. I remind you again, because I did it in the previous message, this is the same Peter who had denied Jesus only a few months previous to this at the crucifixion. You remember that? Three times he lied, and he said that he did not know Jesus or have any connection with him. Then the rooster crowed, just as Jesus had predicted. And the eyes of Jesus met with Peter's eyes at that very moment, and Peter was crushed. The Bible says... He went out and wept bitterly. He sobbed. How could I deny Jesus, the one I've followed for three and a half years? But after the resurrection, when Peter was defeated and ready to return to his previous occupation of fishing, remember he said, I go back to fishing. John 21. Jesus met him at the Sea of Galilee. I love this about Jesus. Jesus showed his love to this backslidden disciple and rescued him from his defeated condition. And by the way, if you're backslidden today, you're a believer, but you've gotten away from the Lord, Jesus loves you and he never gives up on you. He's got his arms outstretched like the prodigal son's father, saying, my son has come back home. Come home, son! He's calling to you now if you haven't returned home yet. He's got his arms outstretched because he loves you. He wants you to return to him. And when you do return, he'll receive you. He won't cast you out. That's our loving God. He's so merciful and loving. Well, that day Peter repented and returned to fellowship with Jesus by the Sea of Galilee. And then on the day of Pentecost, and again at the temple in chapter 3, and here again before the religious leaders of Israel in chapter 4, we find a completely different man. Peter's not cowering in fear. He's proclaiming truth in boldness. What happened to Peter? Well, we're told in 4.8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, he's now endued with Holy Spirit power. He's no longer impetuous, but spirit controlled. He's no longer fearful, but bold in the Lord. He's not merely standing by a fire, warming his hands, talking with a lowly maid. He's standing on the steps of the temple, addressing the highest leaders of Israel in the presence of thousands of people. We could say the former coward is now bold as a lion. Wow, the Spirit of God does that. The same will be true for you when you appropriate the truth of spirit enablement. The only way to have boldness for for proclaiming truth is by the Spirit's empowering. And we see that in the text, the latter part of the text, the key to boldness in verses 23 and 24, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, and we read a beautiful prayer. 
Here's how it starts out. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And it's just a beautiful prayer. We've already seen that first they appeal to God as creator. And then secondly, they quote Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2 and apply it prophetically to Christ. Verses 25 and 26 in our text. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. You see what they're doing? They're drawing from the Old Testament. And they're applying it to their situation in the New Testament. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm and all the Jews knew that. They recognize in their prayer also that Herod and Pilate and the Romans, along with the Jews, had conspired together to crucify Christ. Verse 27, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. But they know that this was all part of God's sovereign plan. Because in verse 28, the sentence continues on to say, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So in other words, Pilate, the Romans, they were complicit in Christ's death, but the Jews were the one who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. But it all was part of God's predetermined plan. Hmm. And then they ask in their prayer for God to do something. Verse 29 and 30. I want you to notice this. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. As if to say, Lord, keep enabling us with holy boldness and keep doing a work amongst your people. Now notice something important. They do not ask God to remove the threatening and persecution. You know, oftentimes when we pray for believers, we pray for God to remove the persecution. But interestingly, that's not done as a general rule in the scriptures. What is done in the scriptures is that prayer is made for those who are going under persecution, that they would persevere and stand strong in the Lord, but they don't pray to remove the persecution. Persecution can make you stronger in the Lord. And it certainly glorifies Christ if you stand strong for him. So the point here is they're not asking God, Lord, take away this awful stuff. No, I want you to notice, rather they ask God to help them endure it. Lord, help us to stand firm and strong and be bold in the Lord, recognizing that boldness is supernaturally bestowed by the Holy Spirit of God. Spirit-filled believers are always bold in proclaiming truth. By the way, if you're not bold in proclaiming truth, you need to do two things. Number one, ask God to give you boldness. Luke eleven thirteen. it's really asking him to give you the Holy Spirit. Now, he lives within you, of course, but it's asking him to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, start proclaiming truth. Believe that he's done it. Trust him with the outcome. Now, what's the result of their prayer? Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, this is not Pentecost, yet there is spirit empowering accompanied by a shaking of the place. You know, strange things often happen when the Spirit of God is poured out. But, number one, don't look for incidentals. Number two, 
don't question God when he chooses to send incidentals. You say, what are incidentals? They're phenomena that sometimes accompany times of revival or spirit outpouring, but they're not essential to the revival itself. Things like in Acts 2, the tongues of fire that danced over their heads. And in Acts 4, the building shaking. That's not necessary for a revival, but we're told that God did send that. So don't question God when he sometimes sends incidentals in times of revival. I'm going to share one instance of this from church history. Duncan Campbell, 1940s, 1950s. On one occasion in a revival in Scotland, reports, and many others reported this after the revival, that the plates in the china cabinet began to rattle and the room was shaken when God came down and revived the people who were praying in that room. And the people were forced down on their faces, prostrate before God. They were in so much fear of him. There was nothing they had done of their own emotion to try to produce a revival. But during their prayer time, the presence of God became real. And the Spirit took control. And by the way, you can read things like this all throughout church history. Unusual things happening. Most of us have never experienced that kind of thing firsthand. So I would challenge you, don't question God and be a critic in this matter of spirit outpouring, but trust the scriptures as you read in verse 31. It happened there. Why wouldn't it happen all throughout church history in times of reviving? It's not the same thing as sign gifts. That doesn't happen all throughout church history. I dealt with that in a message previously. We're talking about incidentals to revival. The shaking is an incidental that we don't expect. But if God sends it, don't criticize it or dismiss it. The result of the Spirit's outpouring, they spoke the word of God with boldness and power. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. The word great here is the word megas, which means exceeding or mighty. The Holy Spirit gave them exceeding, mighty power and grace, which produces boldness. Boldness for proclaiming truth is the primary purpose for spirit baptism, for spirit endowment. We come now to the second result of their prayer, and it's unity. Look at these final verses. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was of his own, but they had all things in common. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. By the way, this is not forced. It's not communism. It's all voluntary. They did this of their own free wills. Unity comes only when believers step into the Spirit-filled life. And when it's necessary... In times like this, in Acts chapter 4, unity is sacrificial. Believers go so far as to sell their possessions to make sure that other people have their needs met. And by the way, I noticed from this text, and you should notice too, and it's a New Testament principle, that God's plan is for the needs of believers to be met through the church, not the government. Now, we live in a culture where our government just takes it upon itself to meet everybody's needs and sometimes wants to. But I will say, God's original plan was for the church to do that, and the government has robbed the church of a great blessing. 
So we essentially don't do this anymore because the government takes care of it all. Who are those people dependent on? The government. They're certainly not dependent on God through his people. Don't worry about it. The government will send me a check. Where's God in all that? See how the government robbed us of a blessing? Now in closing, I remind you of the words of Jesus, which I quoted earlier in the message. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And that's not the way we often respond. It's long faith. Can't believe I'm being persecuted. Rejoice! (laughs) Be glad! For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oh, and I missed the phrase, for great is your reward in heaven. Did you catch the point Jesus is making? Those who endure persecution for his sake in any form, bodily, verbally, will be rewarded in the coming kingdom. They will reign with him in his coming kingdom. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Don't miss this. Those who have believed on Jesus for eternal life, if you're saved, you're an heir of God. What does that mean? That means, in part, there are other things, it means you will receive the inheritance of being resurrected before the millennium to live throughout the kingdom age. Now, there are other benefits. The Holy Spirit lives within you and so on. We're not going to get into all that today. But here's the point I want to make. Only those who suffer with Jesus in some way, according to the verse I just read, Romans 8, 17, will be joint heirs with Christ. They will be rewarded with a body that glows in some degree. That's what glorification means. So that they are not naked and ashamed, Bible terminology, and they will be his bride and co-rulers. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Now, how will some be denied? By not being granted the reward of ruling with him. So this morning I wonder, are you depending on the Holy Spirit to empower you for boldness in proclaiming truth? Are you suffering persecution for Jesus? If you have to say no to these last two questions, or even no to the last question, you're going to have to ask yourself, why am I not suffering some form of persecution? Now, it's not going to be continuous 24-7, of course. But once in a while, if you are really living godly in Christ Jesus, Paul said you will be suffering persecution. So if you're not suffering persecution, maybe you're not living godly in Christ Jesus. And again, I said at the beginning of the message, that verse rattles my cage sometimes. Remember the illustration I shared about John Wesley? I mean, we kind of chuckled at it, but there's a point in that. If I'm not suffering persecution, maybe I'm just not living right. Think about that. The point of today's message is when you do suffer persecution, be it verbal or physical, respond with rejoicing. For great is your reward in the heavenlies. And then persevere to the very end, so that Christ will reward you. Let's bow in prayer.